0: The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Would you join me as we now go to the Lord in prayer? Father in heaven, teach us through your word how to wait on you this morning. Teach us what it means to live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. Teach us to walk by faith and not by sight. Teach us to abide in Christ and to be filled with your Spirit. And we pray that you would do this this morning for our joy in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. One of the most difficult things to do in our modern age, I think, is captured in Psalm 27, 14. Let me read it for us. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I don't know about you, but I th- my guess is that we don't do waiting well. In fact, depending on what you're waiting for, it may be the greatest test of your faith in your lifetime. Consider some of these experiences of waiting. Perhaps you've endured multiple bouts of treatment in your cancer journey radiation, chemotherapy trips down to Mayo Clinic, and you've been asking for healing, and yet you're still waiting. Perhaps you've been waiting for years or even decades for God to answer your prayer for a spouse, and you're still waiting. Perhaps you have been waiting for a child, that God would give you a child year after year of waiting, and hoping, and longing, and trying, and you're still waiting. Perhaps you suffer from chronic pain, dozens of tests, hundreds of dollars in bills, a pile of bills, hundreds of doctor visits, and still no diagnosis and you're still waiting. Maybe you're going on a year or more of unemployment, and you've sent out hundreds of applications and resumes and had a couple of interviews, and yet you're still waiting, asking God, provide for us, please, and yet you're still waiting. Perhaps you've prayed for the reconciliation of a relationship. The falling out happened years ago. And you have been praying, asking, and it's never been repaired. The chasm feels insurmountable, and you're still waiting. Perhaps you've struggled with depression for years, and you pray for help. You've tried various medications. You seek out counseling, and yet the fog in which you live still has not lifted and you're still waiting. Perhaps it's your marriage. It feels entirely beyond hope. The early years of tenderness and love are long gone. You're like ships that pass in the night, and you've prayed hundreds of times, more than you can even count, that God would fix and mend and restore and yet you're still waiting. Or perhaps you were slandered. Lies were said about you. Your reputation has been crippled, and you've cried out for vindication and justice. And you're still waiting. That's just a small sample of situations. But whatever the situation, it can be so difficult and challenging, can it not, to wait on the Lord. God doesn't answer our prayers with Amazon Prime and same day shipping. We live in a world that caters to our every whim, our every desire for instant gratification. And yet, as we wait on the Lord, this is perhaps one of the most difficult things when we see unanswered prayer. It's not how the Christian life works. So, in our passage this morning, we want to look at how are we to wait upon the Lord? That's the question I want us to answer. How are we to wait upon the Lord? And in our passage, we see that the disciples are waiting on the Lord. Jesus has just ascended into heaven, and he's told them to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And ringing in their ears is, there's only 11 of us. Only 11 apostles because Judas betrayed Jesus. What's up with that? And not only that, but he he killed himself afterwards. The future looks uncertain. Their numbers are sparse. The mission is great and their strength is lacking. And so they're waiting upon the Lord to receive the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that next week. Pentecost, but this week, how do we wait on God? What does it look like for us in all of the diverse situations that we find ourselves in? If you're watching from home, maybe for the first time, you have things that you want and you're waiting on God. What does it look like for us to wait as Christians by faith? Our passage reveals that disciples actively wait upon the Lord by doing three things praying searching the scriptures and taking action by faith and the aim of my message this morning is that we would not only recover the discipline of waiting upon the lord but that we would see his sovereign and good hand at work in the waiting so that we would find joy in christ so our passage breaks down into three points wait on the lord by devoting yourself to prayer Wait on the Lord by searching the scriptures, and wait on the Lord by taking action by faith. So first, we're going to look at verses 12 to 14. Wait on the Lord by devoting yourself to prayer. Now, the disciples return to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet to wait for the Holy Spirit the original listeners would have understood that the Mount of Olivet is where many of the disciples met Jesus and where Jesus was arrested and where he ascends to heaven and where Zachariah speaks of a great and glorious day of the Lord when Jesus will return. But until that day, the disciples are waiting. Now, Luke makes a point in these verses to tell us that there's 120 people gathered. You see that in verse 15, including many women, Mary. Jesus's mother and Jesus's brothers, likely the children of Mary and Joseph. They're actually mentioned in Mark chapter 6 verse 3 as James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And there were many female disciples and possibly some of the wives of the apostles who traveled with Jesus as well. And let me just note for a moment, women are portrayed throughout Jesus' ministry not as second-class citizens, but as integral part of Christ's church, as disciples. They traveled with Jesus, probably supported Jesus' ministry through their own incomes. They're co-heirs of the grace of life. And Luke makes a point to draw that out for us so that we don't get it mistaken. Women are an integral part Of the church and in many ways our documents that we'll share later this week will speak to that that men and women together co-heirs of the grace of life and yes God has designed manhood and womanhood differently and beautifully and yet he's designed it and we want to understand his design there's different roles and responsibilities and yet we're together Brothers and sisters in the church as co heirs of the grace of life. Now, Luke mentions 11 apostles by name, and he gives the main emphasis in verse 14. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. And they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. They're not just passively sitting back, they don't go back to what they were doing before which is what they did when Jesus died. They said, well, I guess we go back to fishing. But here, they they don't go back to their previous vocations or occupations. They wait upon the Lord by devoting themselves to prayer. They devote themselves. The primary activity that characterizes Jesus' disciples is prayer. Prayer is not what the disciples do when they can't figure out stuff for themselves, but it's a way of life because they've seen Jesus himself live this way when he was with them. Jesus would retreat up to the mountain and pray all night. Prayer is not the ripcord that you pull in case of emergency. Unfortunately, I think too often in the church, there are Christians who treat prayer like an insurance policy. You have it to protect you, but you hope you never have to use it. Instead, as we look at the life of the disciples and of Jesus, prayer is instinctual. It's a way of life. In the same way that we eat multiple times every day, prayer is the constant connection and nourishment that we receive from God. We used to have a phrase that we would use around here at Bethlehem, that prayer would be the visible engine of the church. How many of you have heard that phrase before? Just a handful of you. We used to say that prayer would be the visible engine of the church, that there's a Sunday morning prayer meeting and a first Wednesday fast where the staff get together, and there's all these other avenues for us to pray Because we understand that we can't do anything in and of ourselves if we're not going to God first in prayer. And and someone might say, well, what about God's word? Shouldn't God's word be the visible engine of the church? And I would just say, I drive a Prius. It doesn't matter, right? You can have the battery and you can have the gas. The word and prayer together are the visible engines that drive Christ's church. In fact, prayer often preceded every significant event in Acts. Let me just give us a sample. Before picking the 12 disciples, it's actually here in our passage, they pray. When the Samaritans received the word of God, Peter and John went down, and they prayed that they would receive the Holy Spirit in Acts 8. After Saul goes blind following his vision of Jesus, what's he doing? He's praying. And then who's told to go and pray for Saul? It's Ananias. Before Cornelius sees a vision of an angel, he was praying. Before Peter's vision on the rooftop about going to Cornelius, he was also praying. The church is worshiping, fasting, and praying, and then in Acts 13, the Holy Spirit tells them, set apart Barnabas and Saul, and they fast and pray, and then they send them off. Before every significant turning point in Acts, prayer is highlighted because it's an integral part of the early church, and it should be of every church. The disciples are said to be of one accord, meaning that they're of one mind, united and of one heart. The word devoted suggests that they're busily occupied with the work of prayer. They've just received a massive mission. Go and make disciples. Preach and proclaim the name of Jesus. And what's the foundational first step? devoting themselves to prayer. I want to address two significant motivators for us to be devoted to prayer. Because I think in the hustle and bustle of life it's it's sometimes hard. You know and, and I know that whenever a sermon is preached on prayer, everyone feels guilty because no one says, I've got it figured out. I I, I pray unceasingly and I do it a lot and, and, you know, I get a gold star and, and I'd be glad to show other people how to do it. And just no one is in that category. But here are two motivators for us to pray that I think are helpful to kind of remind us of this gift that we have to pray. The disciples pray because they needed God's help. They were desperate. God had given them a commission to preach and make disciples to the very ends of the earth and the very scope of this command made them realize there's no way that we can do this. We have no chance if it were not. If God doesn't show up we're in trouble and so they're utterly and completely desperate for God. They need the power of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit doesn't come there, there, there's no hope for the mission and no hope for the disciples. Jesus himself told them, I'm leaving you, but I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. And so they wait and they pray. They pray for God's help and power. It's a healthy dependence and desperation upon God. Now, I wonder, do some of us struggle to pray because we live as those who are self-sufficient. If work is hard, I'm going to work harder. If finances are tight, I'm going to tighten the budget. If relationships are broken, I will fix them with my own relentlessness. If things are difficult, I'm going to put more elbow grease into it. But Christians Of all people should know, we do not live as those who are self-sufficient. We can't live this life on our own. We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us and has given us his spirit and given us prayer. Let me just point out 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We know that we can't fix all the problems around us, and yet we do have many problems, don't we? 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul writes, and he says this, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We thought we were going to die. Indeed, we felt that we, we had received the sentence of death. But then what does he say? But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The very trouble that we were experiencing that made us think that we were going to die was to push us into the heart of God, was to push us so that we would trust in Jesus. And here now, in all the situations and difficulties that we face every single day, they are to push us So that we would devote ourselves to prayer. They are to remind us that we do not live as those who are self sufficient. We do not live as those who can live without God. We do not live as those who can go without the food of prayer. But the second thing I want to point to not just desperation, but delight. We come before the Lord with delight, do we not? In prayer, we're not just walking up to a slot machine and throwing in little coins of prayer and pulling the lever and just hoping and praying. At some point, it's got to pay out, right? I got to hit the jackpot. We just keep pulling the lever, throwing some prayer tokens in, and, and, and just keep pulling until we hit the jackpot. Just keep dutifully praying until you cash in. Oh no. What's prayer? Prayer is a relationship with the Heavenly Father. That we get to climb up into the lap of the Heavenly Father and say, Oh, things are so overwhelming. Things are so hard. Things are so difficult. I'm so angry. I'm so frustrated, Lord. And He welcomes us and He hears our prayers. As a father, very often my kids will come. And they'll say, usually during the work day, they'll say, because I'm working from home now very often, and they'll say, Dad, can you come play a game? Can you read me a story? Can I sit in your lap? And unfortunately, very often I have to say, I'm so sorry, honey. I would love to, and maybe a little bit later, but I have to do work. I have to write a sermon. I have to send an email, or a hundred emails. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I feel bad. Uh, but, but I think they understand, and, and the, the stunning reality is, every time we say to our Heavenly Father, not can you play a game with me, but can, can I vent my soul before you? My heart's breaking, because my children, my parents, my friends work so hard. I'm scared for the world that we live in, whatever the issue. Barrenness. Death, mourning, whatever it is. And when you come before the Father and you say, Can I climb up in your lap? Because I'm hurting. What does the Father say to us? He says, Come, come. He's never, He has never turned away His children when they come before Him and call for His help. Not once. I've done it many times with my own children to say, not now, honey. And yet our heavenly Father says, come. He has never turned away his children. And so when you have problems, and my guess is you have problems, bring them before the Lord because he receives you and he cares for you. Number two, wait on the Lord by searching the scriptures. I need to move faster. I'm looking at the time here. We see that the disciples wait on the Lord by searching the scriptures. And what I want to do is understand Judas' death and understand how the Old Testament scriptures had to be fulfilled. First, the account of Judas' death poses a problem for us. Matthew's gospel describes Judas' death differently from Luke's account in Acts. You can actually read it in Matthew 27, verses 3 to 10 but I'll just kind of summarize it for you. In Matthew's account, it says that Judas returned the money and then went and hung himself. And the chief priest took the blood money and purchased the field to be a burial place for foreigners. And here in Luke's account, it says that he fell headlong and he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. So there's also similarities between the two accounts. They both mentioned the field of blood and, and they mentioned the purchase of the land. So how should we understand this discrepancy? There's at least two ways we can do this. You could say that there's a way to harmonize them, and there may be, but I think there's just different emphases that are being drawn out in these two accounts. In Matthew's gospel, he's condemning the priests who bribed Judas to betray Jesus. And so he, in that account, he's trying to show, look how These priests bribed Judas, and Judas felt this guilt and then gave back the money, and it was still blood money, and so they probably purchased the field in his name. So it's not necessarily theologically significant that there are differences here, but the the, the biggest sort of discrepancy is maybe that Matthew says that Judas hung himself, and Luke says that he fell headlong. If we were to try to harmonize this, it could be, and, and, and scholars are just divided, I'll, I'll just admit, that they're not entirely sure, but it could be that Judas hung himself from a really tall tree, and when that rope broke, or perhaps someone cut him down, he came falling a long distance, and indeed his body burst open after swelling and his intestines spilled out. But the point that I think Luke is actually trying to make is not the manner in which he died or how he died, but rather that he's trying to illustrate the gory death of those who stand against God's anointed ones. That divine judgment is taking place here. That's what you're supposed to see. That if you oppose and stand against God's righteous ones, you will be punished. Psalm 37 uses the word headlong as well. Psalm 37, 23, and 24 says, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong. Why? For the Lord upholds his hand, which infers the Lord was not upholding Judas's hand because he indeed fell headlong because God was bringing divine judgment. And he cites two Old Testament passages from the Psalms, Psalm 69, 25, and Psalm 109, verse 8. And I think both of these are being used to show that the scriptures had to be fulfilled. Now, the disciples had just had a crash course on how to read their Bibles from Jesus. Do you remember that? In Luke 24, Jesus said he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Luke 24, verse 27. And then in verse 44 of that same chapter, he says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus has just taught his disciples how to read the Old Testament in light of him and what he was going to do. And so Peter's not treating the scriptures fast and loose here. What Peter does is apply what David had written about the wicked and about evildoers and wrongdoers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and applies it specifically to Judas. And so the principle that's being employed here is arguing from the less significant to the more significant. So let me illustrate it this way. If God will protect the righteous king, King David, from his enemies and punish his enemies, how much more will God protect the righteous, the righteous king of kings, King Jesus? Or in the same way, if God will judge the wicked who attack King David, how much more will God judge the wicked that attack King Jesus? So Psalm 69, 25 says, may his camp become desolate. Let there be no one to dwell in it. It shows that God judged Judas for his betrayal. Psalm 69 has a section in it that many would call an imprecatory psalm, that God will punish the wicked. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, let your burning anger overtake them, may their camp be a desolation, let no one dwell in their tents and to add to them punishment upon punishment. And Judas's death fulfills the scriptures. He had to be punished because he stood against God's righteous one. Now, Psalm 109, 8 emphasizes the need for another to take his place because Judas was given a ministry. It says in verse 17, he was allotted his share in this ministry. What does that mean? Well, there was 12 sons of Jacob, became the 12 tribes of Israel and now there are 12 disciples. It's reconstituting what it means to be the people of God, and yet when he named all of them, there was only 11, and so they need to fill that slot. In Luke 22:30, 30, it speaks of the disciples, the apostles, the 12 apostles ruling over the tribes of Israel, and so while Judas's betrayal is still fresh, they need to replace him so that his ministry, that there would be no empty seat on that throne, so that there would be some who would be able to take that place. Now, why does all of this matter? Why why does it matter that David's psalms are applied to Jesus and his enemies? The language of fulfillment, and this is really important, the language of the fulfillment of the scriptures points to one really significant thing. It points to the fact that Judas's betrayal, his death, and now seeking a replacement are not accidents or plan B, but it is all part of God's sovereign unfolding plan of redemptive history. Jesus didn't make a mistake when he picked Judas. Jesus wasn't blindsided when Judas came up and kissed him on the night that he was betrayed. Jesus didn't somehow forget to think through all the implications of picking Judas. The crucifixion wasn't an accident. All of this unfolds according to God's sovereign plan, and it shows that Christ is in control. God is in control. We can conclude that even in the darkest moments of life, God is sovereignly working for our good. Even in the darkest moments of your life, God is sovereignly working for your good. The disciples are saying, one of our best Friends, he, he, he was so trusted, he held the money bag. You, you know, it, he would have been one of the groomsmen in my wedding. That, that's how close they were. They traveled all together. And not only did we know, not know his true character, he betrayed Jesus so that he was crucified, and then he killed himself. And, and what does this say about God's plan? And Peter speaks these words to say, no, no, no. It was necessary, as Jesus told us. Jesus told us again and again, it's necessary that I go to the cross. We just didn't understand it. It's necessary that he be betrayed. God is still sovereignly in control. And so in the hardships of your life, the difficulties that you face, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the indwelling power of the Spirit is still in control and can sustain you. And is working for your good. I want to call us to meditate on scripture. And to pray scripture. And I just think it's so helpful when we engage our prayer times with an open Bible. And pray the scriptures. It's an endless resource of God's word for his people. Martin Luther wrote an open letter to Peter the barber on how to pray, and and I'll just quote a short section of it. He says, I think of each commandment as first instruction, which is really what it is intended to be, and then consider what the Lord God demands of me so earnestly. Second, I turn it into a thanksgiving. Third, a confession. And fourth, a prayer. This would be very similar to reading any passage of scripture and then praying acts through it, right? Praising God for, adoration, Confession, thanksgiving, and then supplication. I just want to encourage us. If you're feeling anemic in your prayer life, open the Bible. You can start anywhere. Your Bible reading plan is a great place. And then just pray through all of it until the Lord gives you satisfaction and delight in his word and in his presence. Number three, and i got to move quickly. Verses 21 to 26. Peter sets forth two prerequisites for replacing Judas in verses 21 to 22. They had to have been there since the baptism of John and then to witness his resurrection. Now, they put forward two names, and my guess is that these are some that were among the 72. Do you remember that Jesus sent out 72 disciples in Luke 10.1? And so they're probably among that group. And then they pray once again, and they say, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, in verse 24. We again see the centrality of prayer and dependence on God. And the emphasis is that this is the Lord's choosing and not their own. They are taking action by faith. They they picked these two people, and yet they pray because they understand that it's ultimately up to the Lord. They need God's help. We see the sovereignty of God in this. Now, why did they cast lots? And should we follow in their example? Should we flip coins, you know? This girl or that girl should I marry? I'm gonna flip a coin, because, you know, the Lord's ultimately in control. I don't think that's wise, but let's, let's look. First... They cast lots because throughout Jewish thinking and writing, casting lots is a way to seek the Lord's hand and to allow God's decision to be made. They would have put maybe two stones into a, a bag or into a, a cup and then pull one out or allow one to fall out, and that would have been the selection. It would have been Proverbs sixteen thirty three. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So even the things that we say are by chance are sovereignly ordained by God. Every decision is from the Lord. But it's also striking to me that casting lots is never, ever mentioned again in the book of Acts. And they pick people in Acts 6. They, they pick what some would say were sort of the prototype of deacons to make sure that the food distribution for the Greek-speaking widows was taking place. And they pick people but they don't cast lots at that moment or in Acts 13 when they send off Barnabas Barnabas and Saul that they don't cast lots either they pray and so I think Luke is making a statement that now that the disciples and all of God's people have received the Holy Spirit casting lots is not what we need because we have the very Spirit of God empowering us guiding us and leading us Now, how do we take action by faith? I know that we have many trials and hardships and uncertainties, and we can feel overwhelmed by it all. And yet, I think it's so encouraging when we see this account. The disciples, they obey Jesus. They wait. They're told to wait, so they go and they wait. They devote themselves to prayer. They search the scriptures, and then they take one step forward at a time by faith, ultimately entrusting it to the Lord. And so the disciples are not this fine-tuned group like the Navy SEALs who execute missions with precision and unparalleled firepower. No, no, no. They're normal people just like us who trust in the Lord, pray, commit those actions to the Lord, and then we take steps of faith. So this morning, we are called to wait upon the Lord by prayer. You can always climb up in to the presence of the Heavenly Father, to the throne of grace, and then just search the Scriptures. If our prayers feel anemic or weary, or lifeless, that we search the scriptures and say, Lord, what have you said about these things? How might I pray them back to you so that you would give me the words to speak before you? And then we take action by faith, like these disciples, committing it before the Lord and then walking by faith. Now, I want us to see one other thing before we conclude. This passage highlights The providence of God. This passage highlights the providence of God. Now, what's the difference between God's sovereignty and his providence? God's sovereignty means that he has the power and right to do whatever he wants. God can do whatever he wants because he is God. Providence, when we say that God is exercising his providence, we, we mean that not only does he have the authority to do whatever he wants, but there's no chance and there's no accidents because God is causing all things to unfold according to his perfect wisdom and fatherly hand. So not just is he powerful enough to do whatever he wants, but he's actually causing all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And so we see God's hand of providence at work in this. Judas betrayed Jesus. Does this undermine the kingdom of God? No. Judas killed himself. Is this going to undermine the kingdom of God? No. Jesus was crucified. Is this the end of the road? Is this going to undermine the kingdom of God? No. Instead, we see God's wise and purposeful unfolding of redemptive history because he is sovereign. So in your waiting, God is not making a mistake. You may say, I didn't sign up to wait to be single for 30, 40, 50 years or to never get married. I didn't sign up to get married and then not ever to be able to have kids or I didn't sign up, you name it, to have my spouse die to have my children estranged from me. And yet, in the midst of it all, the call for Christians is to believe that we have not only a sovereign God who does what he wants, but we have a good God, a providential God who works all things together for good, for our good, for our joy. And it may be just to push us deeper into the heart of God so that we would not rely on ourselves, but that we would rely on God. So in your waiting, God has not made a mistake. Don't ever believe that. God makes no mistakes. And yes, life is hard, and yet we have a good good, glorious Father who welcomes you into his presence. And as we come to take communion here in this service, that is where we see God's providence on display most magnificently, is it not? That in the death of his own son, the greatest crime ever committed against humanity He purchased sinners so that they would have everlasting life and joy forever. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we want our hearts and minds to be shaped to be like yours, to think thoughts after you so that you Would get the glory so that we wouldn't accuse you, that we would not point the finger at you, but that we would trust you, that we would humble ourselves before you. So, do that, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others